0: Hello and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. This is still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Oh, this is going to be a great episode. I am talking with Barbara Harris, who is a local historian for the Morongo Basin. And the Morongo Basin is the area just outside Joshua Tree National Park here in California. And this is a really cool area, and we're going to talk about a very specific historical time period, which essentially centers around the late 40s, early 50s, until the mid-70s, when a guy named George Van Tassel kind of took the area by storm, and, uh, you know, made a name for himself as a UFO contactee and, uh, you know, and created a convention for, for people who were kind of into these fringe things, all the stuff that was going on there. And in a way, he kind of, I don't want to say developed his own religion, but definitely his own kind of philosophical following. Uh, you know, he had a, he. there was an, an airport out there and these conventions kind of brought all kinds of people around and, you know, he was kind of the center of all this. Very interesting history, so we're going to get into that. Talk about the Integratron, Giant Rock, how all these things are related, including Ley Lines, 33rd Parallel, all this stuff. But first of all, if you are interested in this and want to hear other episodes, Fascinating Nouns is the website. This particular episode has a lot of pictures. You're going to want to check them out on Pinterest, uh, Pinterest.com backslash noun. And don't forget to listen to all the episodes on Stitcher which is a podcast player. If you don't have an Apple device, uh, you can get Stitcher anywhere. Even if you have an Apple device, I recommend using Stitcher. And if you want to go through the podcasting app, I'm on iTunes. Uh, Fascinating nouns for both of those. So let's get right into it with Barbara. Barbara, thank you for being here. You know, what I really want to get into, and I think this is the really cool subject that that, uh, kind of took my imagination uh, the second I heard it, was this kind of really cool micro history. Uh, in the 40s through the 70s, really, in the small area outside Joshua Tree uh, that includes uh, the Integratron, which is this Howard Hughes-ish inspired building of cell rejuvenation, um, a large sacred boulder called Giant Rock, a man named George Van Tassel, uh, you know, right outside Joshua Tree. And, and, and that area has kind of been, you know, I think you'll you'll kind of go into this a little bit more, but it's kind of been a central Place for I don't want to say anomalies, but but very interesting kind of phenomenon, wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh yes, it has. Um, I call it mysteries and histories yeah. that go on out here. Yes, <laughs> I like quite that.
0: A bit. Uh, so t- so tell me a little bit about what's the you know um, where's the best place to start with this? Should we start with the history of George Van Tassel? Should we uh, go back in time? What should we do?
1: Well, let's talk about Giant Rock itself because okay. this is a boulder that sits in the Mojave Desert, and um, it was once considered the largest freestanding boulder in the world, okay? So many people think of like Ayers Rock in Australia. You know, that, of course, is a rock, but this is a boulder. This is a boulder that just sits out there in the desert. And um, at first glance, people say, gosh, how did this thing get here? Because when you look at it, this is um, it was once over seven stories tall, covered an area over like 5,800 square feet, and it was well over 25,000 tons.
0: Now, what's the difference between so, a rock and a boulder?
1: Well, a rock would be uh, a large, big... Um, oh, gosh. Um, I'm trying... I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm, I'm seeing air as rock, and the rock is more standard, implanted into the earth. Okay. Okay? A boulder is more rounded... And, and it kind of rolls, and it would be not so implanted into the earth. It would be more like a stone that sits on the earth. And so I that, know you're not um, a
0: geologist. You're a, you're a local historian. You've got extreme extensive knowledge of the area. So I'm not going to hold you to that. Hopefully no one will as well.
1: Yes. And one of my things is, is if they really want to know um, about the geology of Giant Rock, um, I give a brief rundown of how it got there. And uh, most people will think right off that it is um, got there because of glaciers. The mm-hmm. minute much of the area around Joshua Tree was actually developed volcanically. Oh, okay. And between, because of the area of volcanics, of of ice, of water, and the whole you know um, situation, how that happens, that's how the boulders got here. And I highly recommend that people go to joshuatree.com, joshuatreenationalpark.com, because on that website they will um, have a rundown of how the boulders in Joshua Tree got there, and that's pretty much the same way how the boulder up uh, in the middle of the desert got there, Joshua, you know, Giant Rock got there also.
0: So this is actually, it should be called, it's a misnomer, it should be Giant Boulder, not Giant Rock. Gi-
1: yes. Actually, the, the the Native Americans who... Um, actually called it the a stone. They called oh. it the big stone, um, and it was a very sacred spot to them. Um, and it, and that goes back, you know, back to the turn of the century, uh, you know, 1800s before the 1800s, 1700s. The Native Americans would um, go there, and, and they would conduct their um, yeah, ceremonies there. And um, many of the nomadic tribes that came through this particular area, of the Morongo Basin, um, they would have their ceremonies on the way from, like, Yuma, Arizona, on their way up to Big Bear. And um, that would be in the spring and the fall. And they would spend three days there conducting ceremonies, which they, incidentally, would call seances. And, um, and this, they considered this boulder, this rock, this stone, So sacred that only their shamans and their chiefs were allowed to stay at that boulder, at that rock, and the actual tribesmen would actually have to spend, um, stay miles away from the rock. That's how holy it was to these, to the native tribes. And and it wasn't until the around 1887, 1880s that the first white man in the area, a man named Charlie Ritchie, was invited into and was allowed to participate in one of these um, ceremonies.
0: Now, this is a pretty Um, desolate area. I mean, even now, I mean, it's it's relatively developed. So in the 1800s, I can only imagine uh, that as far as white men go, this was the only guy in the area. I mean, what was he doing there?
1: Charlie Ritchie was the, one of the first white men in the area, and he had um, he had a ranch. That um, if anybody's familiar with Landers, um, you're right, very correct. That this is a, even today, it's somewhat desolate, and um, the people who live there really like it that way. Um, to add to that, you know, people ask me. Um, people out there still have water hauled in. They they don't have drinking water the way we would have, you know, it's kind of like a lot, you never see those you know, shows on Alaska where they mm. have to, you know, have water hauled in or um, they're off. Many people are off the grid out there still. And um, so, you know, this is, this is in the desert area. Now, Charlie Ricci himself his, his ranch was extra special because it was about three miles from Giant Rock. And what made his ranch extra special, it was one of the only places in the area that actually had water. So it had a well. And, um, and that came into play later on because it became a vital part of the history because his ranch is where the Integratron was eventually built. And what made, made it even more you know, purposeful, was eventually the Integratron was built on three converging aquifers or rivers that were on Charlie Ritchie's ranch, and that is where the Integratron is built now. But we'll get into that a little later, about where the Integratron is built and why it might be built there.
0: And so that's a uh, a geological anomaly, in a sense. I've heard people say that that the Integratron is built on a geological anomaly and that's what you're talking about. And this is that Charlie Ricci discovered this early on as a way to find water and kind of sustain his ranch.
1: Correct. And most of the people that were going out there during that time, they were coming out there for mining. Um, not also far from that ranch and Giant Rock, there's a, a mountain called Goat Mountain where gold was being mined. Hmm. So you have – there is a um, – um, uh, you know, I could call like a triple play of energy, the flows there. The most important things are you have the minerals of gold and copper and you have the water and then you have the weight and the, um, the anomalies of these um, powerful energies that are, that are sitting out there. And um, the, the interesting thing about giant rock and what makes it so special is its weight, and, and how it sits on, uh, I'm going to go a little technical here on you, on a ley line,
2: okay? Mm. okay.
1: Because um, what people um, don't seem to know is is a ley line and what what giant rock and in the Integratron have been attributed to is they sit on the same ley line as the Great Pyramid of Giza. So for those who don't understand what a ley line is, when you pictures of the earth and you see all those little lines that go around it Mm -hmm. those are are the longitudes and latitudes of the earth and um and when you sit on the same longitudes and latitudes as something on the other side of the earth that has the same powerful energy you share that same energy as on the other you know on that same line so um that giant rock the integratron Shares the same energy line as the Great Pyramid of Giza.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yes. And it and it even goes a little farther than that, because what makes this whole area of the Joshua Tree in the Morongo Basin even a little bit more special is because that that particular longitude and latitude line is close or near the thirty third parallel. And for, for people who are interested in in these little mysterious sidebars, the 33rd Parallel, um, if they look it up on Google, gets very auspicious. Because, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, I like this. Okay. Let's see what's going <laughs> Okay. This, this is where you get into the histories and the mysteries. Okay? Let's do it, yeah. Because, the for, for one thing, okay, when you start out with the number 33, it um, for people who like to study the, the Masons and the, Masons, the, the that kind of um, study, 33 is a very important number for Masons, okay? Then you walk into the other side of it and the number 33 will go into the sidebar of, of the number of years that Christ lived. It's the number of years King David, ruled on Earth. It's also 33 is the number of DNA strands of the human DNA. And now you're going to get into 33, the 33rd parallel. If you look on all the 33rd parallel and all the things that have happened on the 33rd parallel, there's the most UFO sightings on the 33rd parallel. It's where the Phoenix lights have mainly happened. Um, it's also where the um, the Bermuda Triangle sits. It's also where you'll find the cities of Iraq and Baghdad. You'll also connect it to where the most things happen, such as the um, bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so it, it has all these little um, connections. And this basin does not... And um, what gets interesting is, is you don't necessarily have to sit exactly on the 33rd parallel, that we're so close enough, we're like 32.3998 or something to that effect, that we're so close that we share that energy.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: what happens is, Giant Rock itself, and I'm sure many of your um, listeners have heard of Sedona, and Sedona is also part of this. <laughs> Sedona is also on the 33rd parallel.
2: Hmm.
1: And what happens is is what happens with giant rock, and this is a whole mathematical equation. This isn't some um, fruit loops and wind chimes thing. Okay? <laughs> All right. Warning to the
0: listeners. we got math coming up. i got to give that warning.
1: <laughs> okay. Warning, warning. Warning, warning. Um, that, that, that when you have um, something is heavy, as giant rock and it puts a pressure and a weight on the earth <clears throat> and what happens is is it it creates a a pressure, you know, um, you know how on your own body, when you have a nerve um that sits there, you hold it for a while, you know, you get a release of energy. And and it works the same way for the earth. And what happens there as giant rock is there's a vortex created. So you have a natural vortex that's created similar to those that you might experience at Sedona. So between the, the Integratron and Giant Rock, you have these massive vortexes that sit out there. So,
2: okay. Yeah. There's a and, lot going on.
1: Mainly, mainly due to the weight that is, is distributed out there in the middle of the desert.
0: And how big is this thing
1: again? Oh man, it's it's you know, well. I don't know how big it is now, but it used to be over seven stories tall, over twenty-five thousand tons, and it covered an area uh, close to six thousand square feet. Wow! So yeah, when when a six-foot person stands by it, they they feel like a little ant, you know, <laughs> right. a little, little tiny person. <laughs> yeah. So it, it and it's made of granite. I'm not, a, you know, so I, it's uh, it has a, the, the makeup of this boulder is, is really, you stand by it and you really feel the energy behind it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the Native peoples knew this, and so they've, and they've built rituals around this, and they understood all these things on some level.
1: Yes. So, and, so the Native people knew this, and then the white man came along, and the white man eventually got into it, um, because um, after Charlie Ritchie came, there was a man named Frank Kreitzer, okay. who eventually came out there. And uh, Frank Kreitzer was a miner, and, uh, and his story gets very interesting, because he eventually ran into a man who I think many of your listeners might have heard about, George Van Tassel.
0: Okay? Okay. All right.
1: and, and and I'm going to jump forward here because Frank Kreitzer's story, I, I always tell people there are three men involved in the story of Giant Rock and the Integratron. And that would be Charlie Ricci, Frank Kreitzer, and George Van Tassel.
2: Okay. And if these,
1: these three men wouldn't have met on some level, there would have ne- never been a story of Giant Rock and the Integratron. And um, Frank Kreitzer's story gets very uh, fascinating because... You know, if you go look him up on the websites and everything, people will automatically see things that he was a German spy. He came from Germany, and and he had this whole background of, you know, of being, um, you know, uh, some somebody from Germany and uh, doing bad things and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, this is around World War
0: Two as well, so that adds a little bit to that.
1: Yeah. You know his story goes prior to World War II. It actually started in World War One, because he made he made a, a trek at one time from his his area in Kansas, and from Kansas he he made his way to the West Coast, and he drove this little Essex car, and this little Essex car made his way to the West Coast, and as it was slowly you know, breaking down. This was in nineteen thirties, late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties. His car broke down, and it happened to break down in a garage that was owned by George Van Tassel's uncle, named George, named Glenn Payne.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So George Van Tassel and Glenn Payne were in this, you know, automotive garage when Frank Kreitzer's car broke down in that garage, okay? I'm just talking coincidences here.
0: It's total, yeah. So
1: so here they are on the West Coast. They all become friends, and Frank Kreitzer all of a sudden says, you know, I'm going to make my way, and I'm going to become a miner, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And they all become friends. And at some point, Frank Kreitzer takes off, and he ends out in the desert, and a year later, um, George Van Tassel gets a, a, a note from Frank Kreitzer, and he says, I'm out here in the deserts of California. Come visit me. And George Van Tassel picks up, and he goes visits his friend in the desert, um, and uh, they become friends. George comes out to the desert quite a bit to visit his friend Frank. Now Frank Kreitzer's out here in the desert and while he's living out here in the desert, he digs himself a home under this twenty five thousand ton boulder. Get that. So he digs under this boulder, makes himself a home. And in the process of that he also makes an airport. He also makes six over sixty miles of roads leading to this boulder. Out wow. here, so this man was really busy, and he was in between that. He was supposedly doing mining. And, now, can can
0: ask one quick question. I want to bridge the gap here because it's something I'm not really clear on. How did Frank Kreitzer discover Giant Rock? What is his connection to that? How did he did he stumble across it?
1: I well, during this particular time, what was going on was the U.S. government was giving away land. It was homesteading land. The same telling people that if they came out to this particular area, this desert, you can get five acres of land for free. And all you had oh, to do was build on this property, and, and it's yours for free. However, Frank Chrysler never, um, he kind of squatted the land. He never really went through the government to get the land. He just kind of showed up. And, um, and he just showed up. He just kind of came out to the desert with the rest of the people who were migrating out to the desert at the time.
0: But did and he know uh, about specifically about Giant Rock beforehand?
1: I, I don't know. I really wow. don't think so. I think he just found his way out here like most people were doing at that particular time. Interesting. And, and they were looking. That's a really good question. Thank and you. I would really like to look more into that.
0: I would like for you to look into that too. I'm very curious now.
2: Yeah. How did he find I, I, a,
0: How did he find this thing? I, I mean, I know it's a big rock, uh, but you know, because it was so special, you know, it, it would strike me that he, someone must have taken him there, and I don't think he knew. He didn't know Ricci, so there was some. There's some other gap there.
1: Well, I, I could make a, I could make a guess. Okay. Because uh, one thing is, is Charlie Ricci did have the ranch down the road from from Giant Rock, okay. so Charlie Ricci did know about the rock. And Charlie Ricci did know about the mining that was going on around the area, so there were other miners in the area that I know of, and other things that were going on in the area at that time. So, who, it's my my guess would be that you know Frank Kreitzer made his way out here to the desert, met up with Charlie Ricci, met up with some locals, and um, and they told him about Giant Rock, and and maybe at some point. Um, you know, Frank just went out there and just started digging and made it right. his home. Then he turned know? into
0: a mole and then built it. He literally built yeah. underneath this gigantic rock and lived under it, correct? Yes,
1: yes. And he was very wise, though, because making that his home, it it actually was perfect because in the summers it kept the perfect temperature of like 78 degrees. And in the winter, it kept the perfect temperature of 78 degrees
2: wow. because
1: of the way he had it ventilated and the way the, the area was. It was a 400-square-foot um, room. He had rooms in it, and, um, and it was he, he kind of knew what he was doing. So uh, it, he was very, very smart in how he put the thing together. And, um, you know, so he had his little lifestyle going on out here, and he would have people coming visit. Um, his rock in the desert. He was very well known throughout um, tourist magazines, and and he would have Easter sunrise services going on out here. He would have PTA picnics for 300 teachers and things like that happening out here. So my question has always been, when you read about Frank Kreitzer, many times you read that he was a a hermit, that he was a recluse, and he didn't want people to be around him. But my question has always been, why would you build an airport, roads leading to your house, and and then offer to have you know all kinds of reporters and people come to your house if you wanted to be alone? Mm. So um, yeah, so he has his own stories. But what makes Fred Kreitzer actually um, quite interesting was the fact that he was under suspicion by the U.S. government. This you know this was during the McCarthy era. This is World War II going on. And the people in the desert had him under suspicion. They thought he had a German name. They thought he was doing something illegal out here. And um, people were watching him. And even the U.S. government investigated him at one time. And um, something happened. During the 19, 1942, the U.S. government had something happen where they required the the men in this country to sign up for the draft again and it was called the old man's draft and it required men between the ages of 50 and 55 to register for the draft again Okay,
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and it wasn't necessarily meaning that they would go to war they, they were just getting a count of how many men would be available if they did have to go to more war and what was going on Frank Kreitzer happened to be 54 years old. And so at one point, these sheriffs from from Banning and Beaumont, they're from the Riverside County, they came out to Giant Rock and they offered to take Frank to the nearest town to get registered for the draft. And Frank, being somewhat ornery and somewhat knowing that he was under investigation, was not going to leave his rock and um, he went downstairs, and uh, he t- had a pair of binoculars around his neck. And and, he, and attached to the binoculars were explosives. And he attached, and he put the two wires together. And as he put the two wires together, he blew himself up. So and, su- suicide. Yes, he committed suicide. And along with that, he um, injured... Um two of the the officers and and then the other officer was just standing outside in shock because he couldn't believe what happened. And this is basically over just the fact that he didn't want to go register for the draft. there's got to be there's um, got
0: to be more to it than that because, I mean, he committed suicide because he didn't want to register for the draft. I mean, he probably wouldn't even have been drafted.
1: Yes huh. yeah yeah, so there was uh, actually, there probably was more to it. and and you know, Frank probably knew that if he left his home that people were going to come in and investigate and look what was really gonna go on at Giant Rock. Um, you know, so you really don't know what what the real story is. Yeah. But here here's where it gets interesting. Okay. Because remember I went back and said that George Van Tassel and Frank Kreitzer were friends.
2: Mm-hmm. And they
1: had been friends for many years. So here, here was this man who just, you know, committed suicide. There was this wonderful home that had been dug out under the rock, and, and George Van Tassel was on the coast. And George Van Tassel himself, you know, he, he had a background in working with um, used aircraft. Um, he worked for McDonnell Douglas. Mm-hmm. He worked for um, the three, the, all three of the aerospace
0: Lockheed, um, I believe, as well
1: Lockheed. Yes, yeah. so all three of them, and you know, and at one point when he actually saw that there was a vacancy now available <laughs> in the desert, um, and George loved the desert, he kind of picked up his family and he moved them now to Landers, California, Giant Rock. Back to the giant
0: rock. Now, this is a major move. Uh, yeah, I want to put a kind of a point on this. This is a major move. I mean, he's not just a regular, you know, guy working for this place. I mean, he's like the top the top airline uh, mechanic, I believe, for Hughes Aircraft. And this is Howard Hughes, uh, which that will also become important later on in the story. But, you know, this is a man with, a, with a, a family and a career who decides to pick up and move to live underneath a rock, basically like a hermit in a way. Um, what what causes that kind of move? Why did he do that?
1: Who would know? I'd ask that many times.
2: <laughs> Fair because, enough. Because
1: you know, uh, you know, I got to tell you, uh, with a wife and three daughters, uh, I would be a little bit, you know, a little bit peeved. Like, <laughs> what do you think you're doing here, dear? Sure, you know, you're yeah. moving us out to this rock where there's no bathrooms, no showers, mm-hmm. no water, uh, right. and we're gonna live how? you know
0: in a so you
1: know his his wife and his family must have loved him very much um because they literally went from living city life
2: mm-hmm. in
1: uh you know a, a nice Santa Monica area on the coast in in southern california to going out to this desert uh where there is nothing there is nothing there today. I mean, even, even now (laughs)
2: you you have to
1: drive five miles to the nearest bathroom. Okay. (laughs) It's, it's it's really a a desolate area. And uh, I can't imagine even during that time, because, you know, there's no air conditioning and, and I'm going, gosh, you know, we go out there now, at least with our air conditioned cars. And I got to tell you, it gets really hot and windy and, it's mm-hmm. a brutal condition out there sometimes. So, um, so don't, don't oversell it,
0: Barbara. Don't oversell it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's it's it, but it's so beautiful. It, it is he, beautiful. I, I really have to tell you, it, it is a beautiful part of the desert. So, um, he he moves his family there. And uh that was like in nineteen the early nineteen forty forty one and there isn't and there is
0: still an airport there. I do want to so it is it's not just a rock and a hole. I mean, there is an airport which is significant, you know i yeah. mean I, I don't know I don't know what I, let, let me just back up for a quick second since I'm talking about the airport. Why did Frank build the airport? What was the original purpose?
1: Well, this is what gets interesting because there are stories of Frank Kreitzer. now he built the airport. And Frank, he, he was very, um, what a better way to put it, he was retentive about that airport. Okay. Um, because he, had, he was so, he wanted that airport to be so perfect that there are stories of him going out on the airport ground and actually taking sandpaper and sanding it to make it smooth enough for the, the aircraft to come down. Off of it. And when I've done oral histories with the old timers that have landed on that airport, they often told me that Frank would direct them not to come all the way in to Giant Rock when they landed, that they were instructed to come partially down the rock and then turn to the right and go over into an area of the hills and um, park Mm. their park their aircraft into the hills on the side. And when they would do that, there was an area that the the aircraft would park and the pilots were able to go in and there were bunks in there for them to sleep. And it was well stocked with food and items for them to just hang out with. So this is, I think, where a lot of the, the suspicion came that Frank Kreitzer had ulterior motives and and were taking, was taking in people and things that maybe he shouldn't have. you got to remember, this is World War II. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: and I did uh, kind of an oral history with a man, Morgan Ricci. And, and he was the nephew of Charlie, a great nephew of uh, Charlie Ricci. And Morgan, at one time, told me a story and he told me a story of um, one night that his dad heard airplanes coming into Giant Rock, and these air, these planes did not sound like the normal planes that were coming into normal planes that came into Giant Rock. And, and his father used to be part of the Civil Air Patrol, and, and they were so suspicious for him that his father drove from Landers and wanted to report them. And he drove from Landers down into Yucca Valley to make a report about these aircraft that were coming into Giant Rock. Now, at some point, the Civil Air Patrol launched their aircraft to, to see where these aircrafts were going. And um, eventually, how the story wound up, that the Civil Air Patrol ended up taking down a plane over Blythe and when they took down this plane over Blythe, the plane that they took down had a Japanese pilot in it. And the pilot had maps of, um, had, had loaded down with dynamite and had maps of Hoover Dam hmm. in the plane. So And nothing was ever proven behind it if that was the plane that landed a giant rock or where that came from. However, that was an actual story that um, was in the papers and had been published um, for the sake. And I think that was one of the spears that had started, Frank, to be under suspicion.
0: I would say so. That would definitely be very suspicious.
1: Yes. So... You know, but nobody ever could prove it that it was him or, and uh, and if that plane actually came here, um, mm-hmm. so you, you talk about why he built an air, airport out here. Um, it could also be because he intended. When you read it more about his background, he had the intention of of making this more of a tourist attraction, and 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 if you read a lot of mm-hmm. the old history about Frank Kreitzer. Oh my gosh, this guy—he's so funny because we talk about paparazzi today. Every photo that I have with him now, and and the family is shared with me and stuff. It seems like he was always ready for a photo op. I mean, he's oh, always belly. smiling. He's all—he's working on the giant rock, and he's always like dressed up. He has his best glasses on. He has—it's <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> kind of funny. He's it, it's really—it's really cute actually because hmm. he—he's really. Yeah. He, he he's a real he was a really, really intelligent man. He had um very smart writings and um and I and I and I think George Van Tassel saw a lot of that in um in Frank. I think George Van Tassel and Frank were were good friends from the readings and the stuff that I've read about anyway. But getting again yeah, but you know, getting back to Van Tassel You know, when when he came out, after seeing that his friend had passed away, you know, he had this opening now to move his family here. And so now George moves his family to Giant Rock. And and how are you going to keep your family happy here? Um, And one of the things that George Van Tassel did is he, the first thing he did is he built his wife a a restaurant because his wife loved to cook. And, and um, he built a restaurant called the Come On In. <laughs> and what became famous for that is because Howard Hughes used to be one of the first customers and used to fly his plane into Giant Rock uh, Airport just to get one of Ava. Ava was um, George's wife, and, and he she he used to fly in just to get her apple pie, a piece of the apple pie, or to pick up a hamburger, and um, that that restaurant was a very very popular restaurant out here. At one point, it went from a six stool little restaurant to a big, nice sized restaurant that people would would drive to here in the middle of the desert. Wow! And it, was, it was amazing. So it was very very popular. And people would fly in and bring their cars and come in motorhomes and the whole, the whole bit.
2: Wow. Um,
1: yeah. So, So. and the thing that made George Van Tassel put him on the map, though, is that one night he was out and about, and, and here you go, I'm gonna set the stage. Because you have to understand we have these dark, beautiful skies here in the desert. And you see things and things happen in these desert skies. And he had a an encounter with a UFO, a spaceship. And um, he claims, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to keep it shorter, that he claims that these these people that he met, these space people, were from Venus. And these space people told him that, you know, you humans, you're coming along okay as a species. You're doing okay. But it seems that by the time you you get it, that you finally get it, you die. So we're going to give you some technology. We're going to give you some help to help you Expand your life to help you live a little longer. So that's how the Integratron was kind of born. He was George Van Tassel, had this communication with these space beings, and he was given some knowledge, given some technology, given some understanding on how to create what we know today as the Integratron. <laughs>
0: Now, I'm going to come in here just really quickly. Now, I'm, I am i don't want to burst anyone's bubble on this story yet, but I, I, there's one question I have to ask. Everything that goes on from this point on is really interesting, but the fact that he got his information from what— if he would have said, you know, uh, a UFO—if he wouldn't have given it a home planet like Venus, which we know is uninhabitable— how, that is that just like a red flag to me to say, I, I don't know how much of that story could possibly be true. Like why would, but why would he make that up? You know what I mean?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Because of all the planets
0: yeah. in, the, in the terrestrial system, like if you said even Mars would have been more believable. But Venus is such a harsh planet that no one's coming from Venus. But he said Venus. And that's been, like, in my head since I've heard this story.
1: Yes, and if you ever hear the description how he gives um, the people that he met their blonde hair, blue eyes, long, tall, um, long hands, um, I've often had problems with that because, to me, they're very Aryan-looking. Yeah. Um, And... And I have to also look at the time frame of the 1940s. Um, I often had um, difficulty, you know, with the descriptions of that. Um, and in many of the, the contactees and the people of that time, when they describe their their contacts with other beings, um, that's how they describe they they call they describe them as being very human like but you know when they describe them being very human like you never see an asian alien or a, a you know a black alien right find, uh, you know they're always blonde haired women with bright blue eyes or you know they're like Schwenn from you know sweden <laughs> or something <Sure>. you know <laughs> <laughs> i i you know i i i that, that was maybe their point of reference at that time. I, I don't... Um...
0: Well, so, so like, now that particular part, now that description, since we're talking about the UFO part, and I'll try to make it quick, because I do think there are other things to talk about. But the Venus thing really stuck in my, in my craw. Mm-hmm. However, that description, if you look throughout UFO history you know, that you're basically describing the Nordics. There are several different types of very popular beliefs. So given the fact that there are lots of people across the world who have had contacts who've described them as Nordics, you know, that blonde hair, blue eyed, very tall, that part I could almost buy into as being part of the mythos. And, you mm-hmm. know, but the fact that they're from Venus always really bothered me. Nonetheless, so he, he had contacts with these people, uh, claimed to be on a spaceship, was given a technology and then he put that technology to work. He didn't just hear it and talk about it. I mean, this, is, this drove him to, to be very focused and then build the Integratron, correct? This is the, this is the genesis of all that.
1: Correct. He, um, now, he had help. Um, he, at this point, he, he um, had these visions. He had this happen. And um, he went to Hollywood. And uh, this is, he had six other be- people that he met with. And I don't know the names of these six other people. Um, I tried to research these out um, over the time. I-, I can imagine one of them being Howard Hughes because um, he had to build up funding and he was looking for money to build the Integratron. And in order to do this, uh, he started a foundation called the, the Council for Universal. Universal- Universal wisdom. The council. That's what I think it is. I, I think I'm misquoting that right now. Um, and and then he also was, started conducting um, uh, UFO conferences. Oh, that's on, the
0: Ministry uh, of Universal Wisdom. The, in Mino- the college.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you. The Ministry of Universal Wisdom. Um, at it, uh, and he would send out uh, f- newsletters and keep people abreast on his channelings. And, and things that were going on, and it was a way for people to, to be in contact. Um, the other thing would be that he started these um, inter, interplanetary spaceship conventions, you know, spacecraft conventions at Giant Rock, and that's where Giant Rock started its fame, you might say. And, and people would come out to this Giant Rock in planes, automobiles, campers, and um, they would come out to the and listen to speakers speak in the middle of this desert. and And, and it was a time and a place that you got to imagine we're, you know we're pretty accustomed to, to hearing this stuff now. but here you go, you got to go back and take yourself back to the to the 1950s. and you're coming out of the wars, you're coming into the McCarthy era. You know, this is a, a really tough time where people were afraid to talk and tell, what they're seeing or what they're feeling. So for people to, to stand up and say, you know, talk about government conspiracies and to talk about X-files and and things that they might have experienced in the sky, okay? Now, you know that, you know, during this time, the government could have been conducting many kind of spaceship, you know, aircraft, you um, you know testings that people didn't know what was going on
0: yeah and in that area area 51 i mean lots come out now about area 51 but they were flying extremely high speed craft that looked a lot like some ufo sightings so a lot of those were government craft and also in 47 to add to this that's when roswell happened so you have both of these factors kind of you know going you know uh Joining, uh, uh, what I want to say, intersecting at this exact same point when all this is going on.
1: Very much correct. And, and so people were coming together and, and talking, talking for the first time. And, and you would have, that they called them contactees, and these contactees were coming out here to this desert, and they were coming out to Giant Rock. And in 1959, it was actually um, published that there were as many as 15,000 people making their way out to this isolated part of this desert to hear Van Tassel, the contactees, and many people starting to come here and talk about their experiences. They were looking for understanding. It was kind of like the start of the hippie movement of the, I guess, the beatnik era, okay? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of look at old pictures and look at things now and call it like the Burning Man of its time.
2: Sure. Because...
1: It really was. Uh, I mean, it, it's actually quite fascinating to see how people would camp out and, and actually come together because they were so hungry for information that they wanted to just be together and share their information and be with people of like mind. So um, it, it, whatever Van Tassel was doing at that time was so beyond what everybody else was doing. And it was happening here in our little area of Joshua Tree, Mojave, and, and and nobody really knew about it. You know, everybody hears about Roswell and, you know, and the other things that go on in the world. But here, you know, this was just, just a sleepy little town here in the desert. And, um, and you know, and, and here he is. He traveled. Van Tessel traveled the world, though. You know, there's, there's people that talk about, him in Brazil and talk about him in Europe and talk about all of his, his work because he really was trying to raise the money to build the Integratron. And unfortunately, he never got the chance to turn his Integratron on because it was weeks before he was about to turn it on and he died. Huh. He, he put 18 years of his life into this integratron, and in um, and people say he was within two weeks of turning it on, and um, he had a heart attack.
0: And wow. That, yeah. Now this is, and this is eighteen years. So this, this, this particular structure. Let's can, let, can we go into it a little bit, like how it was built, like what went into it, because this, you know, this involves. Howard Hughes, who was you know, kind of out there in some ways, you know, his design for the Spruce Goose is very similar to this, uh, and plus you have Tesla technology involved here, you've got a UFO shape, um, kind of, see if you can tie all that stuff together, I feel like I just gave you an improv class, and you got to tie all that stuff into a story, but that's all the stuff that went into the Integratron, right?
1: Oh yeah, okay, the, the first thing is is the Integratron was, was built, or intended to be built with um, no metal okay so it it was built in um the the shape of a ship um of a, of a boat like sh- a boat would be built so it was um i, I don't want to know what that is the peg how they use the the peg and the the, the shifting of uh, how they put ships together i don't know that offhand of how that was done um and And so, and it has um, an upper chamber and a lower chamber, and then around it are these. um, uh, Oh God, I'm I'm going blank now, of these um, die rods, or Mm -hmm. what they're called, and these die rods stick out from the middle of it, and they were intended to spin around on a bed of air, and as they would spin, they would create an an electrical arc, and the arc would then um, hop up, go into the top top part of the building and go down and through some copper um, wiring and the copper wiring would then, you know, you would have a, a positive charge on the top and a negative charge on the bottom and it was intended for people there were two doors on the bottom and people were intended to walk in one door and walk out of the, the other door and through this process they were intended to be healed through that um, that electromagnetic arc or that electromagnetic um, energy that was happening around them. And Van um, Tassel at that time, you know, he was, he was so far ahead of himself with that theory and that, that type of work because we know today that that type of healing does work. We know that that heals bones. We use it today. Um, the that type of um healing um with you know what we do today in our hospitals. So um the thing that I've often wondered is if people have ever seen the integratron and and how it would have worked that I've often wondered that if you've had that that electromagnetic um sound in that arc and that um it would be like electricity or like a thunder and lightning going off above your head, and if it's spun at such a rate, what would you be creating? You know, that was so untested that, you know, it would almost be like it would be creating, um, we've often theorized that it would be almost creating a time machine. And I don't know, people have heard about, you know, the Philadelphia experiment. And And we used to laugh going, "Gosh, if this thing ever really got started, it would disappear." So there were a lot of theories that were untested with the integratron, and I guess we would never were never really going to know what it was going to be capable of. But but
0: why didn't they, you know, because he only died a couple, it's not like he died, you know, he'd been building it for 18 years, you know, he included some of the stuff you're talking about has included a Tesla coil, there's a lot of things with with oscillating waves, There's a lot of electromagnetic things going on. He had built most of this, he had gotten the information uh, from extraterrestrials, if he had written it down, why didn't someone just finish it, he was only a couple weeks away from being done. You know, I imagine 99.98% of it was completed. I mean, couldn't someone just finish up what he was doing and turn the, you know, flip the switch?
1: I would imagine so. I At the time, uh, he had a, his wife, he was involved in it. What um, was told to me that um, after he died, that they went back to the Integratron and um, a lot of the information was gone, was missing, Um I don't know if that, you know, information is often, has been recovered. Um, so, you know, again, a lot of the people have come in with, you know, conspiracy theories and other theories and things that have happened in between that. So over the years now, there's three sisters who do own the Integratron, and they they conduct um, what is known as sound baths mm. at the Integratron. So they use... The integratron. Went, this is, in my opinion, probably in a more gentler way mm-hmm. than um, maybe George Van Tassel would have used it. Um, in my opinion, I don't know if I would have been real comfortable walking through one door and out the other door while I had a an electrical storm
2: <laughs> <Sure>. going off <laughs> a foot above
1: my head. Um, you know that that's just me. But, it's um, me too,
0: by the way. Me too.
1: Yeah, I I think I would have had second thoughts about that. Um, I, that's not taking away from the work that he did, and and I'm ultimately what the 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 machine would have done. But um, I'm you know I opt to the, the the sound bath and maybe a little bit more of the the gentler way of healing um, <laughs> that sure. it, it offers nowadays. Um, now, there have been people that have come to the Integratron in its early stages that scientists and people that often look at the Integratron the way it is now and, um, and say that George Van Tassel had something there, that they, they have confirmed that it would have worked if he would have continued. However, that again, in, in my opinion, was again the technology of that time and, and to do something in today's technology and this time, it, to do something like that, we would have technology would be, that would be completely different and, and maybe a little bit more um, evolved to turn it on or to do something with it and, and I don't think it, it would be going in that type of direction um, that you know, Van Tassel had planned.
0: Well, there's a couple of cool things here that I wanted to tie up. So this, again, now going back to what we talked about in the beginning, was that this this structure was built on a, on a geological anomaly. Uh, so so there, there is an energy field there. That is true. And these types of geological anomalies um, exist in the world. You know, there's one here in Los Angeles uh, that, that, I've, that that I know about. There are places on the earth where things operate a little differently. And you said that there were, you know, three aquifers conjoining under there there's a reason why he built it there so that's 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 fact um the second fact is that this particular building is acoustically perfect meaning that the sound baths the w- the reason why they work or seem to work is or at least are cool at the very least is because every single bit of sound the sound waves bounce all around this chamber which is essentially an echo chamber uh you know i've, I've been in it you can hear everything at almost any point within this thing so you know the, the science behind that is is very sound, no pun intended. So you you have this you have this building. So if you take it a step further and you say, okay, we're well, we're not just going to use sound waves, we're going to use electrical waves. Well, electrical waves are going to bounce and react on a physics standpoint in the exact same way that a sound wave is going to. They're just very they're, the the frequency is significantly smaller. So if you take it a step further, I, I'm no scientist, but I imagine that. At least the basis of being bombarded with these waves, whether or not they're good for you or not, th- I think that that holds true. So this is one of those instances uh, where you have at l- you don't have the full truth, You know, like you're saying that the potential was extremely high, and had they turned it on when it was fully working, who knows what would have happened. We don't have that because he died beforehand. But what we do have are little bits of clues that say, you know, there really was something to this, but... And those are the types of stories that I think capture people's attention because we don't have the answers, but the, but the the questions that we have would seem to correlate with that type of result, which is always, these are the types of things that can drive me bonkers and keep me awake at night.
1: <laughs> Completely. That's what it makes it, the history. Mm-hmm. The history and the mystery of the desert. It's very,
0: very true. Uh, So uh, on this, what's kind of cool here, and I'm going to watch this segue here, Barbara, stand back. Uh, You know, these space conventions that he put on these, you got this really cool name, the Interplanetary Spaceship Conventions. In a way, they've been extended and they've been going on today uh, in a particular gathering called the Contact in the Desert, which you are fundamentally and significantly a part of.
1: Oh yes, it's coming full circle. We're coming back. Look at that. That's the biggest thing that's happened. Because when I first came out here, I had such an interest in giant rock and and the integratron. And my biggest question was: is I watched all this fabulous history happen, but it seemed like it died out probably around the you know the eighties. And and I wondered wow, what happened. What happened? But recently, out here in the desert, it's coming back. And three years ago. Josh Tree Retreat Center started doing contact in the desert and right now on May 28th, 29th and 30th um, and 31st, we're doing our um, contact in the desert and uh, I'm going to be one of the speakers there. There's going to be massive, it's it's becoming one of the top, you know, must see, must go to um, conferences in, in the world right now. Um, Speakers such as um, Giorgio Tuchelos, George Norrie, um, Eric Van Donegan, um, Edgar Mitchell is going to mm. be part of it this year.
0: Stanton Friedman, and, one of my favorites.
1: Yes, yes. And, um, you know, just the, the list of top speakers going on. And David Wilcock, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys go on and on. And um, and Barbara Harris.
0: And Barbara <laughs> Harris would be there, that. I heard.
1: Yeah, Barbara Harris. hey going to speak on Giant Rock <laughs> and uh, take people out to Giant Rock. So, uh, and uh, I just invite people to check it out and uh, go to, um, jo- go to uh, contactinthedesert.com and find out all the information about it and, uh, and come and visit us. Come and check it out. And I'll have you links know,
0: on the website as well so people will be able to find it. I just realized something, Barbara. There's a very significant part of the story that I'm missing. Again, stand back. Watch this segue. In two thousand, February twenty third of two thousand, a large chunk of giant rock split off, and there's a prophecy behind that as well. Yeah. I forgot about yeah. this. Tell us about that before we sign okay. off here.
1: Well, in in two thousand, there uh, again, it's always at the millennial, you know, of course. And, and it's when the world was going to come to an end, and the whole thing. And here you have this rock, this big giant boulder who's been out there for millions and millions of years. And of course, there was a prophecy that um, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to put it into simpler terms, but it goes deeper than that, that basically said that if the the rock split in the middle, that mankind was going to be doomed and we're not going to, you know, go on as a species. But if it split to either side that we would survive and, and live on. And of course, the rock split on the side, and um, I also had a little issue with this um, rock splitting because the people that that made this prediction or did this uh, attributed it to more to a Hopi prophecy, and um, this Hopi prophecy, um, we don't the the Mongol Basin here we don't really have Hopi, prof you know tribes in the area, however. We do honor the Native American cultures within the area, and um, so my my theory behind it all is this thought: this rock is millions and millions of year old years old. And no matter what happens, why did it pick that date? Mm-hmm. Out of all the millions of years old it is, it picked that date. And no matter how it broke, whether somebody did it, how it did it, the earthquake, the winds, and there's all kinds of theories and and I'm going to have some new information on how it broke. And you're going to tell us right now. You're
0: going to tell us right now, right?
1: No, I'm not. I'm going to be disclosing it at at Contact in the Desert. Of <laughs> isn't course that, you Isn't are. that just like a nice little lead-in? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, yes, what were those so dates that, again?
0: When is it? Con-
2: the-
1: it's Contact in the Desert. It's um, the end of May, May 28th, 29th, and 30th. So, um, yes. And uh, you can go to um, contactinthedesert.com.
0: That'll be great. And you, can, and you will be talking about your new uncovered information on why Giant Rock Split and how this all came to be. Look, it's all come full circle. Look what we did there.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, well, Barbara, I want to thank you so much. This has been very eye-opening. This is such a cool story, and uh, y- you can't really get your head around it without talking to someone who knows it like the back of their hand. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you to everyone for listening, and have a good night.